Happy Easter, and welcome to New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. Open your Bibles up to the gospel according to the beloved, the gospel of John chapter 20. We're going to read through and Isaiah 50. I, I kind of wrote this. And I got oh. some friends who were there during this time. So we're oh. just going to take over for a little bit if that's Wait, okay. Wait, John? Yeah, yeah, the John. John? Yeah, the John. And Thomas. Hey, man. Yeah, the John. What would it be like to hear from the Apostle John, Thomas, Peter, and Mary Magdalene? That's all part of today's Easter message. The gospel takes care of our sin, but the resurrection is the thing that brings that last hundred yards. He runs back to us. Here's Pastor Randy. Well, happy Easter, New Hope. You guys can elbow bump, introverts wave, whatever makes you feel comfortable. That, that first song we sang about the mountains and the valleys, there's a valley, a Kidron Valley, and, and along that Kidron Valley, there is a fault line. It rises right next to the Mount of Olives, and the Word of God says that one day he will return to that mountain, and the mountain will be laid low, and the valley will rise up because of that fault line, and he will return to that place, and we are here to celebrate that today. Happy Easter. Open your Bibles up to the gospel According to the beloved, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're going to read through and Isaiah Randy, 50. We're, we're, I, I kind of wrote this. And I got oh. some friends who were there during this time. So oh. we're just going to, we're going to take over for a little bit if that's Wait, okay. John? Yeah, yeah, the John. John? Yeah, the John. And Thomas. Thomas. Hey, man. How are you? I, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. I was at your town just two weeks ago. Nice town. Thank you. Yeah, nice town. It's probably in better condition when you lived there. Yeah. And hey, I'm Peter. Good oh, <laughs> firm handshake. I, I expected that firm handshake from you. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you guys to it. All right. Okay. So on the first day of the week, y'all call it Sunday. I came to the tomb early. It was me and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The disciples were locked away and they were afraid of the Pharisees. When I got to the garden, just past the horrible place where Jesus died, the tomb, the I found the tomb, but the stone had been taken away. So I ran and went to Simon, Peter, and John, and I told them that, that Jesus was gone and that I didn't know where his body was. So the other disciple, we left quickly. And uh, we were running together, but John is so fast, he got there first. And he ducked down to stick his head inside the tomb because it was a small area, and he saw the linens, but he didn't go in. When I got in, I went right in away because you know I'm not afraid of anything. And... I saw the linens there, and the only thing was his uh, face covering wasn't in the same place. It was folded up neatly in a different location. I'll never forget that detail. So Peter says, come on, let's go look. I said, it's okay, let's go look. He said, no, it's really okay, with that silly smile he always had on his face when he knew he was right. I had not seen that smile for three days. We were all grieving, but Peter had a secret. I kept asking him what was wrong. He just cried, and I was not used to seeing him cry. So I went to the tomb and looked and believed. We did not understand the scripture before us, that he must rise from the dead. He told us over and over, but now we believed. I asked Peter what to do, and with that big smile, we just left back to the house. The guys were not going to believe this. Then he punched me in the arm and said, there is no reason to be afraid anymore. I said, I thought you were never afraid. And he just punched me in the arm again and ran off, but I caught him. They left laughing and punching each other as they ran back yelling like two schoolboys. But I just stood there, crying outside of his tomb. I stooped down to look inside to see what they were seeing. But I saw two angels sitting where Jesus was laying. 
There was one at the head and one at the feet. The angel said, woman, why are you weeping? But I was too broken to be afraid. I said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. I turned around, and I saw someone standing there. He said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I thought he was the gardener. I said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him. Jesus said my name. He said, Mary. No one said my name like that. When I was possessed, broken, and unloved, he said my name, Mary. And I was healed. Now he said my name in this darkest day, and I was healed again. I said, Rabboni, which means teacher. I'm assuming y'all don't speak Aramaic. Jesus said, there's so much more to do. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So I went and I told the disciples, I've seen the Lord. I never thought I would see that face again or hear his voice, but I've seen the Lord. He was always restoring what was broken, lives, hearts, kingdoms, and me. I was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told me, we've seen the Lord, but look, they don't call me Doubting Thomas for no reason. I'm the guy that asks the questions no one wants to ask and says what no one wants to say. He died, okay? The Romans know how to kill. So I said to them, unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. So eight days later, we were inside again and I was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among us and said, peace be with you. He looked at me and said, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But I didn't need any of that. I just said, my Lord and my God. Jesus did many signs in our presence, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in him you may have eternal life. Life, not simply existence, but life. A few days later, a bunch of us were at the Sea of Galilee, and I said, I'm going fishing. And uh, everyone else said, we'll go with you. So we fished all night, and nothing. Um, Good thing he made you fishers of men, because fishing for fish was never your strong suit. Thanks, Mary. Just as day broke, Jesus was at the shore. We did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to us, children, do you have no fish? We replied to him, no. He said, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. We had nothing to lose, so we cast our nets and boom, a haul we were not able to pull in. I said to Peter, look, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he jumped into the sea and swam to Jesus. When I got to the shore, there was a charcoal fire with fish on it and it was bread too. And Jesus said, I need more fish. So he went to the boat and pulled the nets in. uh, And they were full of big fish, 153 of them. Uh, Yes, it was heavy. It was so heavy, seven disciples couldn't pull it out. But I, I was so happy to see Jesus that I pulled it out myself. And he said, come, have breakfast. And then later, Jesus came to me and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I said, yes, Lord. You know I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. They looked at me again and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. They looked at me a third time and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I was really grieved that he asked me a third time, do I love him? And I said, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. It really grieved me that he said, do you love me three times? Because I had denied him three times. Yet he restored me three times. He restores things that are broken, just like Mary's name, 
John's fears, Thomas's doubts, my denial. He doesn't leave us broken. He doesn't leave us empty. It's like I wrote many years later. Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He showed us how to do that. How to restore, how to love, how to live, and how to live again. My sixth grade year in Sunday school, our church was growing, and I got a new Sunday school teacher, uh, Bill Sweet and his wife, Phil. And it wasn't just because the church was growing. We took the attic of the church for our Sunday school room, and we fixed it up, and we painted it. It was the 70s, so it was a lot of mustards and pastels going together. And we, and we also had beads for a door, and the door was, was a short door because it was an attic. Well, the tombs were actually short doors too. We see it in pictures and it's a big tall door, but the tombs are actually small doors. So you would have a stone that would be rolled across that and would seal that up, but it was a short door. And we had this short door and we, would, we went in. Our first day that we gathered in this new room was an Easter Sunday morning when I was in sixth grade. And we went in and he had bean bags there for us to sit in and he had gone to the next town and gotten donuts for us. And we're, and we're sitting there and he, he read this story, and he was reading about what Mary says, someone stole Jesus' body, and he looks at us, because he always taught very, in a very interactive way, and he goes, who stole Jesus? Who stole Jesus? And having an overdeveloped sense of guilt, my buddy Gary James leaned over, and he goes, do you think he thinks we did it? <laughs> no, that's not the story. Why does Jesus come back, though? The, the cross Theologically, the cross takes care of the sin. The sin's covered at the cross. So why, why the resurrection beyond the promise? Why, why is, is it that he comes back? There's a restoration that is still to be done, a restoration in life after life after life. This is not just another morning. This is another age. The week had begun with Palm Sunday, when he comes down the Mount of Olives, that mountain that one day will be laid low, and he comes down the Mount of Olives and he enters in, there are palms. And then there is the Passover. There have been 1,500 Passovers. And on the, on the doorpost, the same place that the blood would be on the cross, on the head, on the sides, and now dripping down to the feet, the Passover represents that, that death would pass over because not of the goodness of the people inside, but because of the blood of the lamb on the door. And the Passovers are celebrated again, that last supper. And then there is the garden of Gethsemane. There is the anguish. There is, there is the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest. There is the punishment, the, the, the torture that takes place, the night that's spent in Caiaphas's cell. I, I was in that cell just a couple of weeks ago in the Caiaphas house. And I just got down on my hands and my, and, my, and my knees and just prayed and just thought about the fact that this is where Jesus was. And Jesus goes from there to Pilate for the judgment, the Via Della Rosa, that, that, that journey to the cross. And then there's the cross, there's the nails. And all that is done there takes care of the cost of sin. Prophesied. Years before, 500 plus years before in the book of Isaiah, 
It was, some people said in Isaiah 53, if you got your Bible, flip over to Isaiah 53. It, it talks about exactly what it would be in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, some of your Bibles say with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. So specific about Jesus that some critics said this had to be written post-Jesus, but then a Bedouin shepherd boy throws a rock in a cave in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. I got to see those caves just a couple of weeks ago. And what had been written hundreds of years before, prophesied about, is seen to be lived out in the life of Jesus. But now he comes to the tomb. Why, why the resurrection? One of my favorite stories in the Bible, probably my favorite story, besides the whole story, is this one. There's a boy, it's in John 15. There's a boy and he comes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance. And to say you want your inheritance in the ancient Near East means you're dead to me. And he goes off to another land and in that land, he has a posse with him so he spends all of his money on his buddies. And it doesn't take long to spend money when you've got a lot of buddies. And he's reduced to taking care of pigs, slopping pigs. I, I, my uncle had a pig farm. I've worked on a pig farm for a summer. I know what that smells like. The smell never comes off those clothes. You get dressed outside because the smell is so strong. You can wash them, it stays. And the slop, it's so disgusting, but the, the food that the pigs were eating was, was appetizing to him. He comes up with a plan. I'll go home, but he needs a story. I don't know if any of you are like this, but whenever I knew I was in trouble, I would always get my story together before I went home to talk to my dad. So, so I, he's got his story together. He's making his way towards his dad. Here's the picture. This is the Rembrandt's famous prodigal. There's, there's one really big thing wrong with this picture. One really big thing wrong with this picture. You see, the father has the son there. And it's a beautiful thought. But the reality is, at this point, some things would have already happened. Because you see, the father is looking down the road. He's looking for him. The son is trying to figure out, what do I say when I get there? I got my speech all prepared. Father, I have betrayed you. I'm not worthy to be your servant. I'll just be a slave in your household. But the dad cuts him off. There'll be no talk of this. No, bring the robe. Cover. You would have never seen the father with his hands on the son without the robe on. He puts the robe on. He takes a ring, he brings a ring, and he puts it on him. It signifies you're a part of this family. You have the authority, the restoration and he puts shoes on him. If you were a slave in the ancient Near East, you did not have shoes because you could run away, but he brings shoes. There'll be no talk of the slave stuff. No place for that. There is no place for that. There never was. No, you are a child. You are my son. You have been restored. I love that story. 
but I love the fact that the father looks and runs that last 100 feet, that last 100 yards, he's looking. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes when I feel distant from God, and there are days like that, and I wonder, how do I get back? And here's the incredible thing. The minute that I wonder that question, and I open up, and I start praying, he comes, he restores. He's the one who runs the 100 yards. It isn't us. The gospel takes care of our sin, but the resurrection is the thing that brings that last 100 yards. He runs back to us. He doesn't leave them where they are. He doesn't leave Thomas in his doubts. He doesn't leave John in his fears. He doesn't leave Mary. Mary was this woman. The, the Bible says she was possessed by seven. That means totally possessed. That means she had no control over her own life. I don't know what had gotten her to that point, but she had no control over her life. I was at her village just a couple of weeks ago. I wanna show you a picture. They just recently excavated this village. This is the synagogue in that village. And here's the really amazing thing that I get goosebumps every time I see it. This stone right here that you're gonna see, this stone was was laid out, on that would be laid out the scrolls, there is a great likelihood that Jesus would have laid out the Isaiah scroll on this very stone and read it. A great likelihood of that. And he restores Mary. She becomes central in the Gospels. This, this is the one he shows himself to for the first time after the resurrection. Her testimony would not have been legal in a Roman or a Jew, Jewish court but he was not looking for legal confirmation. He was looking for personal restoration. That's what Jesus was doing. And he comes to Mary and to Peter and John and the rest of the disciples. He restores. Life is never the same again. That's why Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Your sin, my sin, all of them the sin of the world, his love, his forgiveness, his death, his resurrection. It's that powerful. When we, when we learn how to step into what that is, it changes everything. And you say, Pastor, I haven't been in church in a long time. Some of you guys maybe never before. You don't even know where to start. Here's the really good news. You don't have to. He's the one that runs the last 100 feet, church. Amen. He's the one that comes. He does, doesn't he, Vanessa? He does. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Alistair Begg. With this, I close. Alistair Begg tells the story of the thief on the cross. There are two thieves there. The one on this side, he curses Jesus. The one on this side says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me today? I wonder how he would have known who Jesus was. Was he... Was he walking along one day and he hears this sound, unclean, unclean, and he goes to the side of the street because that's what you did when lepers came and Jesus walks right through there and he walks right up to the lepers and he touches them and he heals them. Was it when Mary is delivered? Maybe the man at, who is possessed by a legion and they go into the pigs. I've seen that cliff. 
Maybe it was when a widow comes through the street and she's crying and her son has died and Jesus brings life into him. Maybe he was outside of the, of the house when he breathed life into that young girl and said, give her something to eat. Or maybe he was stealing spices from a graveyard and he heard a crowd coming and he ducked into one of the graves that didn't have a stone. And as he was there, he looked out and could see Jesus. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. I don't know when he met Jesus on a hillside among thousands. I don't know. In the city the week before, when he comes riding through on a donkey, prophesied hundreds of years before, I don't know, but he said, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom today, will you remember me? Alistair Begg puts the story this way. The thief gets to heaven, and there's an angel there, and he says, so tell me, how'd you make out? Because clearly you made out, you're, you're here. The thief says, I don't really know. He says, well, tell me about your doctrine of justification. He says, I don't know what that is. Tell me about your view of the millennium, the last thousand years. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know anything about it. Tell me, were you baptized? Well, it rained on us for about three hours this afternoon. Does that count? None of those things. Well, tell me how you got here. If your answer's in the first person, you get it wrong. If your answer is I, I believe, I have faith, I, or this one, I did the right things, because we didn't. No, the answer is always in the third person. And this is what he said. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. Amen, church? I thought I'd get a better reaction out of you than that. that simple. We try to make it real complicated. And listen, I have, a, I have a doctrine of justification. I have a doctrine of sanctification. I have a millennial view. And they're all the proper views. And if you disagree with me, you'll be wrong. <laughs> but the gospel is the guy on the middle cross said, I could come. And he invites us, not, not just for forgiveness, Life, life. Just pray with me. Lord, I pray this morning as we would pause and remember this day, this celebration, this, this holiday. It's about more than eggs and pastels and family, although it's about that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's a time to celebrate and enjoy. Lord, I pray though that for each and every one of this, I pray this for me. I pray this for my wife, for my children, for my granddaughter, for my grandkids that are not here yet, but on their way. For the ones that we'll baptize today, for the kids in this church, for the kids in our kids' life clubs and the Thrive Clubs and our, our huddles, the kids and the families in this community. 
that we would not just know that our sins are forgiven. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that by that you took the iniquity of us all, as, as Paul says, that you who knew no sin became sin. The anguish of the cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would know how to live and live fully in that restoration. You've called us by name. You've run the last hundred feet, the last hundred yards to us. Our excuses are not needed because the guy on the middle cross said we could come. So we are here today in Jesus' name. One, one last story. Hemingway writes that there was a young boy who ran away from home. And his father, grieving, goes to the biggest city and he takes an ad out in the paper. The boy's name was Paco and he says, Paco, tomorrow at noon I will be at the town square, all is forgiven. And Hemingway writes the next day there were a hundred boys named Paco in the town square. There is something inside of us that longs we don't have a God-shaped void. We are a God-shaped void. He longs to live inside our lives. His Holy Spirit come and fill us and show us how to live and live again. Can we stand? And we're going to sing about that now. Amen. Thanks for listening. I'm Myrna Brown.